Bar Post Podcast. It's a very special episode for a lot of reasons. We're reviewing the Tillies games against the US, but more importantly, the four of us are in the same room in Sydney, which is an absolutely wild concept considering we have not done that once throughout the entire life of this podcast. So we're so excited to be here at the ESPN offices in Sydney to record this episode together. I can look at all of your faces, which is an just a joy and a delight and a beautiful novelty. But enough about that stuff. Let's actually talk about the games because that's what people are here to listen to. So it's me, Marissa Lordanic, Sam Lewis, Anna Harrington and Angela Christian Wilkes. It's all about the Matildas friendly. So let's start as we usually do with some you love to see it. I will go to you first, Sam, so that you can try and keep it brief. Everyone knows what you're going to talk about. But what did you love to see from these Matildas games? I loved to see... Claire Wheeler's tackle that set Shocked. up the equal. I know, I know. All the listeners out there, you must be just beside yourselves with shock. Claire Wheeler's tackle was unbelievable. It was not just an important tackle in terms of setting up the equaliser that Kai mm-hmm. Simon scored in the second game. It was just the most beautiful tackle I think I have ever seen in football. It was delicate it was controlled it was balletic and it came from the player who I think we're going to start talking about more and more with as this Matilda's side grows because she as soon as she came on she made an impact in that midfield she set up the equalizer and she did everything that we know Claire Wheeler is really good at so Claire Wheeler proving me right you love to see it Harrow do you have the letters so that Sam can do an I was right I don't think up? any of us ever disagreed, though. Like, <laughs> That's very true. Right, That's the very I was true. right is for uh, stern disagreements only. <laughs> very good point. Anyway, what did you love to see, Anna? I love to see a tackle that if that didn't happen, we never would have even got to the Claire Wheeler moment, um, which came in the 80th minute of the second game against the US. Steph Catley's challenge on Morgan Weaver. Um, degree of difficulty, exceptional. They were on the burst. We know how good the US can be in transition. Mm. And Steph Catley, the ever-reliable... Victorian in the Matildas just said no thanks beautifully timed sliding tackle ended that run of line eight minutes later the Matildas equalized so yeah beautifully timed tackles you love to see it we collectively love to see it Angela what did you love to see why well, you love to see it was seeing your beautiful faces but oh, you've I'm done sorry. you've done you, the you can do that's it again a, well I do love to see it. that's I love to see it that's that's mine but if we're going on the game and seeing things in the game I did really love to see Kaya Simon score. Like, I think we all did, but I think it was um, nice, I guess, taking into consideration the her performance the game before, which I thought was fantastic, but it was just the finishing and she wasn't able to convert. And she had, you know, that shot that she chanked, which, you know, happens sometimes. But, yeah, it was nice to see a little bit of retribution there um, for her. And, yeah, it does, it does count as her goal, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're the expert. Yeah. yeah. Even though it... Did that little skew with on target anyway, so it still counts as her goal, not her goal. Yeah, so I love to see that Kaya Simon scoring, and also yeah, just rounded out the the whole I guess event of the two games quite nicely. You love to yeah. see it. We did love to see it, and she said as much that she really wanted to score. She went into the Newcastle game like I need to rectify that mistake because it's gonna eat her otherwise. But lots of good you love to see it. Let's actually turn to some match chat. We asked for your questions on Twitter, so we got a heap of them. So thank you. We will try and get through as many of them as we can. We'll kick things off with Edmund's question. So he asked, is Tony still on honeymoon after 13 match- matches 
of mostly chaos football or is everyone still on board because he is a very good mm. speaker? Harrow, I know you had a lot of thoughts on this question, so kick us off. Yeah, we were actually talking about this um, collectively pre-pod, which we don't normally do. We like to save all our thoughts for the pod generally. But the term honeymoon period, I think, really stuck with us all because in terms of on the field, I don't think he ever had a honeymoon period because he deliberately set out to have really, really difficult opposition, like getting smashed by the Netherlands, getting smashed by Germany. Like, um, in comparison, you look when Ante Milicic came in and the Cup of Nations, um, Australia were just fantastic. They were up and about, scoring goals. Everyone was sort of riding the wave of momentum. Um, so that felt like more of a honeymoon period. In terms of, um, yeah, maybe in terms of his, uh, I guess how people perceive him in the media, um, maybe a little bit of that has worn off because I think everyone loved him, especially in the in the Olympics. We saw... Fans really enjoy just, um, just I guess, how much his personality comes through on the touchline, his honesty, his, um, yeah, really personable sort of coach. But I don't think there was ever really a honeymoon period. And if there was, it was maybe delayed in the sense of the Olympics, like because it was kind of smashed in friendly, smashed in friendly, improved performance against Denmark and obviously a um, goalless draw against Sweden. And then the Olympics happened and it sort of went up and then we've sort of seen, a, a, again, a little bit of a, um, a drop-off post these Brazil friendly. So it's, I think it's difficult to say there was actually a pure honeymoon period because he deliberately didn't want to have one. He didn't mm. want to have us. We saw England smash Latvia 20 nil the other day. They didn't get to pick the opponent because it was a World Cup qualifier. But we didn't see, like, playing, um, you know, sort of bunny teams and smashing them 5 nil or comfortable 4 nil wins or anything. Mm. So on field, I don't feel like there ever was a honeymoon. Sam, I know you've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, it's a curious one. Um, I mean, I think that was, it was obviously very deliberate from Gustafsson not wanting to play those teams. And he said it from the start, right? Like he was shown this performance gap report when he took the job. And one of the big findings from that report was that the Matildas continued to play low-ranked opposition, smashing them by heaps and not, le- not learning anything, not improving, not getting any better. So I think that he has taken that and he has justified these friendlies since he took over within that context. And that's great. And I think we have seen some important um, changes and improvements and experimentations in the Matildas that probably wouldn't have happened had we played lower ranked opposition because we wouldn't have needed to make those kinds of changes. But when it comes to the honeymoon period, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm curious about the the way in which we are assessing his success so far because I think at the same time we are still giving him the benefit of the doubt because he has framed these friendlies constantly as we're experimenting this is preparation mode it's not performance mode so we don't focus on score lines we focus on how we perform we focus on the things that we're experimenting the players that we're bringing in the new players that we're trying to embed into this team to build towards tournament mode and I think by virtue of that contextualization, we've sort of been like, okay, so, you know, not a great performance against the USA in second friendly, but we saw Courtney Nevin, we saw Claire Wheeler, we saw, you know, so we've found sort of ways to sweep aside perhaps poor performances because of the way in which Tony has framed them for us. And I think maybe that's going to be the thing that changes depending on how we go at the Asian Cup in January. Because if we perform badly after these poor performances over the course of the sort of the Brazil but mostly the US friendlies that's going to be the period I think where the media and where the community more generally is like all right something is happening here that we need to talk about properly yeah I I agree on that I think 
Tony's very much hung his hat on tournament mode, being ready for tournaments. He's one from one, I think, in that sense so far. And yep. the, the best ever performance at the Olympics. Yep, that's a that's a tick. So you've done. He actually said this, and I asked in the press conference post the second match, like, how do you how do you balance this? How do you balance um, trying to prepare for a tournament and you know with these difficult matches, with your players' confidence, with you play, they're winners, right? Professional athletes are the most competitive people on the planet. Like, how do you juggle um, these two things? And he essentially said it's about preparation and building confidence is by knowing that you can do these certain things against top teams and then execute in the tournament. So for me, it all does come down to how they perform at the Asian Cup because, I mean, they haven't won it since 2010. They won it in 2010, mm. but they made the final um, under Alan Stadjic in um, 2014 and 2018. Um, they obviously won it in 2010 under Tom Samani. So the last three Asian Cups, they have made the final. So that's the bare minimum, realistically, you'd think. And we know that there's a different thing at stake this time because they don't have to qualify for the World Cup via this tournament. But, you know, if you if we're talking about wanting to make an impact in a World Cup on home, so got to be pushing to be champions of, of Asia first. So I think that's where we'll see things really, really come home to roost, whether it's for good or, or bad, because if, you, if you're putting all your eggs in that we're going to do these things to be great in tournament mode, they've got to turn it on come tournament mode. So January, it's a big month. Angela, how do you... Also, the, we had like a secondary question from Matt, which is that Tony is coming in for a lot of criticism. Do you think it's been a fair level of criticism? Uh, I can only really speak to what I've seen on the torts. And a lot of it I'm not sure is necessarily fair because I think there's an all of what you both just talked about, the appropriate amount of context is required to sort of break down the bare numbers that we're looking at. So, for example, if you look at... Is it, Three wins? I can't remember the exact numbers. Not a maths brain. But anyway, those things are where it counted, right? That was, we had a, a great Olympics and I think that's really important and that sort of needs to be emphasised, as we've mentioned as well. All of this is leading into tournament football and I do feel for Tony in the sense that all of these friendlies, like, it's like three hours of football, for example, the USA one, and you're a coach who only has so much time to see how particular players are going to perform under pressure. And he's got so much work cut out for him as well. So all of that context, I think, needs to be taken into consideration because how much realistically could he have gotten done in a year? Sometimes, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but yeah, sometimes it feels like people are like, oh, there's problems in the defence. And it's like, well, he can't just pull a defender out of his ass like that the defender has to come from somewhere <laughs> right and there has to be and then that defender has to then if it's a young player like Jessica Nash or Courtney Nevin then they have to be I guess adjust to a whole new kind of football and a whole new kind of um I guess preparing for football as well in terms of camps and that sort of thing um in a very high performance context at the senior level so mm, I think some of it is not justified but I do understand the sort of potential anxiety around okay so when is this all going to come together because it sort of feels like we're still looking at him putting together like I'm just thinking about a cake like it's still like the cake's being mixed a little bit I don't know and we haven't seen the final product but will we I don't know is it just going to be a work in progress until the world cup I don't know I don't know but yeah uh too long didn't read I think quite a lot of it is unfair but on the other side of it, I think it's good that there is criticism because it means people are paying attention, mm. which is nice. Now, also on the other point as well, I think honeymoon period, I'm trying to think of an, a better alternative, but 
I think Tony is at that a disadvantage in the sense that we did have that sort of euphoric coming of age Matilda's moment in like 2017, 2018. And that's where a lot of this sort of attention has been generated and a lot of new fans came into the fold then and sort of started to position the Matildas as our golden girls or whatever it might be. And I think, yeah, so we're not ever going to go back to that, but I think that's good because it means that it's, it's like a different project and a different, I don't know, yeah, task moving forward. It's not just about, you know, getting the good vibes at a sold out game, even though that's nice as well. But, you know, do you know what I, do you get what I'm saying? We're not presenting Matildas to the world anymore. And so scrutiny is good. It's a good thing. It shows development in terms of the media, in terms of the fan culture. And I think most of all, in terms of the Matildas. And I, I like that you mentioned that the defence and also the context of, I guess, this coming of age moment in 2017, because things like, for example, the defence, that's been a that's been a thing for several years. Yeah. Like, I remember doing press conferences five years ago where you're going, okay, so um, if you need, if we don't have another centre-back, then Steph Catley will go into centre-back and then who plays left-back? Is it KK? Do we have another left-back? Like, who can be the next centre-back? Like, these questions aren't new to the mm. Tony Gustafson era. This has been going on for a good at least five years, I'd mm. say. Like, yep. these are not... Um, these are not new things that we haven't had, I guess, a centre-back come through who would currently be in that, I guess, 23 to 26-year age group who's a consistent performer. Um, in comparison to, say, the US, you have a Tiana Davison who's just stepped in and just looks so natural and comfortable, was obviously at the last World Cup. We haven't had that player, and that's why I guess we're seeing this fast-tracking of Courtney Nevin, who we'll talk about I thought was fantastic in the second game against the US after a difficult first game. We're seeing these players have to get fast tracked so young, so it's it seems like it is a bit that process. It's not it's not like we had defenders and then all of a sudden we don't. It's like we had those defenders, but Alana Kennedy played more minutes than just about any player in the world a couple of years ago. Yeah, like did. Alana Kennedy and Claire Polkinghorne have been mainstays. Sometimes with Steph Kelly, Laura Brock's retired now. Like it's it's the same group of players. Like yeah. and that's where it is going to be difficult because you've got a lot of players who've played a lot of minutes and then when they're not there as Alana, Kennedy and Claire Falkenhorn weren't in the first game and Kennedy only had limited involvement in the second one, mm. these players who are trying to fill that vacuum of minutes but have just barely played or, you know, five years ago when we were asking these questions were, in Courtney Nevin's case, 14. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, it's a fast-tracking process. So it is... Yeah. It is sort of lingering stuff that's been going for a few years. I think that's the context that's important to keep in mind as well. And this is, I think, where the, the most unfair criticism is levelled because Tony has inherited all these problems. These weren't his... Pro he didn't create these. He has been dumped with this stuff and told to figure it out. And it's going to take time. Angela, as you mentioned, you can't just drop a player into a centre-back role after they've never played at international speed before and expecting them to hit the ground running. Like the two young gals who started in the first friendly, Courtney Nevin and Jess Nash. I, I think to myself back when I was 17 or 19 years old and I just would have collapsed on the ground and I just would not, <laughs> I just would have refused to play. You know, it was extraordinary that they were managed to like find it within themselves to not just get out on the field in the first place, but to bounce back from that early goal. You know, they really settled, I think, in that, into that first half. And even though Nash was pulled at half time, it was planned, it's pre-planned. 
I hope that she's doing okay because I would have been devastated as a young 17-year-old making my debut in front of a record crowd and that's the thing that everyone's been talking about. Like we're all sort of complicit in creating these narratives as well and focusing attention in certain directions. But like what more do people want Tony to do? He's trying to figure out the answers to these questions in the ways that he can with the extremely short amount of time that he has as an international coach. He only has his players for a grand total of about three months over the course of a calendar year. There's only so much you can accomplish in that time. So he's like he's really up against the, the wall with this sort of stuff. And so I think some of the, the criticism that he's been getting, like, why haven't you figured this out? It's like, well, it takes time. He needed to, first of all, figure out what the problems were. And now he's in the process of trying to actually answer those questions. I think what I did like in the second, I thought the first performance was much better than the second in a lot of ways, but I think one thing that maybe would have, in hindsight, is wonderful, as we all know, having Steph Catley alongside Courtney Nevin at centre-back in the second game, I thought made a big difference, Mm. and I feel like that maybe should have been the move for the first game, to have an experienced centre-half alongside um, one of Nash or Nevin. I think that's because they got caught out in the first goal. I know that it was a real calamity of errors from multiple players. You have Van Edmond turning over the ball. You have Carpenter maybe not be able to contest the header, but you obviously have the the poor initial header from Nash, never not tracking, Nash getting shown up again. Like There's so many things that go wrong, but you know, if you had Steph Catley next to one of those two players, I think it would have been less likely to happen. So I think maybe that would have been a good move, but hindsight is everything. I think what, what it does, it has prompted a lot of questions of people asking, so what about these these centre-backs that we've seen maybe in the, the A-League women competition, your Emma Checkers, your Jenna McCormick, Angie Beard I maybe would have liked to have seen who was actually in this mm. squad. I think it is going to be a, a big uh, A-League women campaign for any centre-backs out there to try and put their put their hands up. But I think, yeah, I think a, a lot of the issues that we saw with defence came with fixable things. Like the yeah. second game, the first, the, fir- the, the first goal, the US goal in the second game is horrendous. Like widely just pan, just horrendous tracking there was a turnover and then it was poor tracking Ashley Hatch gets the easiest of goals in the end and Tony basically said wasn't acceptable he also said the pressing in the first half against the USA and Newcastle shit that's his word that was a verbatim quote yes yes he said sorry to put like that but I did think that (laughs) so they're they're very they're very fixable things um but I do think it also it's a team defence thing, right? Like, it lends itself to how is the pressing, how is the work all over the field, and this probably does lead quite well into, Marissa, I don't want to steal your thunder, but into the talk about the defensive work in midfield and specifically a six, because we've seen it, again, this is something that's not a new sensation, a new sensation, Emily Van Egmont playing in six. Like, we saw it under Milicic, we've seen it under Stadich, we've seen it again under Tony, and I think everyone knows that Emily Van Egmont is better further up the park. Um, Mary Fowler is really coming through there, which is fantastic. We've seen some bursts from Kyra Cooney-Cross. Tamiki Yallop's always reliable um, further up the park. But it does... I think the question we all had after Newcastle, and Tony sort of... Um, it didn't really answer it. He sort of just... Maybe we could have brought Claire Wheeler in earlier. Maybe... like it's Ever since Elise Callan Knight's had this run of injuries, mm. which has stretched since before the 2019 World Cup, the six has been the the area and I think that's something that we really need to address and Sam it, it, it seems like Claire Wheeler is the obvious it's the obvious answer she hasn't all I like to clarify saying she hasn't always been the answer because she had to get experience she had yeah. to go and prove herself but she's been doing that in Denmark she had a really good W League season went to Denmark we've touched on this so many times and when she came on the field the other night beyond that 
superbly timed challenge. She just brings a burst of energy. She can direct traffic, from what I could see. Um, she was showing some leadership, showing some voice, and bringing a real sort of hustle and energy, um, which is very different to what an Elise Callum Knight brings, but she's also mm. a very level-headed person. Mm. I mean, Sam, you, you're Claire Wheeler, pumper number one. So, I mean, what, what do you think? I think it's going to be a big thing to fixing our defensive issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the question of the number six has been lingering for a long time. And, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, the importance of these two USA friendlies, it wasn't just the importance of seeing how much depth we lack in centre-back because of these injuries to Alana Kennedy and Claire Polkinghorne being rested, but also what happens when you have injuries in that really central, pivotal number six role. We see that Emily Van Egmond, like, she does a job, but as we saw at the 2019 Women's World Cup, it's not the best job that she can do. Same as Kara Cooney-Cross. When you rein them into that number six role, you take away what makes them special. You take away what makes them dangerous. And particularly given we sort of struggled to score and create major goal-scoring chances against the USA, I would have loved to see an Emily Van Egmont or a Kara Cooney-Cross move further up the park to try and unlock those defences, to try and make those key passes that they are so good at making, to try and have more shots from distance, you know, to do all the sort of things that brought them to prominence in the first place. But I, I, again, I understand the dilemma that Tony is in because of the entire squad that was brought in for the USA friendlies, Claire Wheeler really is the only clearly identifiable defensive midfielder of the entire squad. And maybe she wasn't particularly ready in the first game to come on, but when she came on in the second, I think she probably felt like she had a point to prove. And she did. Home crowd. She proved it. She was in front of a home crowd up in Newcastle and she absolutely proved her point. And I think by virtue of that five-minute spell, I expect her to be going to India in January. I expect her to be starting against Indonesia in the first game, to be honest. Absolutely. It's a game we should, a game we should be going out to win and win comfortably. Mm. Why not just get it in place then? Yeah. That's like, get get Wheeler in there. You can play Fowler or Van Egmond or Yallop or whoever further up the pitch. It's, um, I think it lends itself to that talk about square pegs and round holes, which is something that I think a mm. lot of the commentary on Twitter in particular has touched on from past players, from pundits from fans and I think they're legitimate criticisms like yeah. we saw um at times I know it was a meant to be a fluid sort of backline setup that could switch between back three to five and and a back four <laughs> but we saw we saw Tamiki <laughs> yeah. Yellow at, at left at left back at times that meant in, in the four like mm. it was you know you had Nevin and Catley two left-sided players and I don't, I don't want to criticize that because so often you see teams have two right-sided centre-backs yeah. right and then Ellie Carlton's are on the right like you want to see and I know injuries prevent this we look so much better when Alana Kennedy came on yeah so and if you've got Alana Kennedy or Claire Polkinghorne at least one of them in a back two mm. with potentially Courtney Nevin um and then you've got Catley and Carpenter that goes a long way having a stable six also does and then the attack just writes itself that's yeah. that's probably the thing that you can uh, almost rest your laurels on you know that there's going to be some players who can create chances can create goals um, and a lot of games are going to look very different because the US are the, probably the best team in the world on transition. They're fit, yeah. fast. It's really like fast and furious, right? They're physical. This is full of players who are hungry, out to prove a point. Um, and players like Emily Fox really did. We saw yeah. Casey, Casey Murphy in goal. Um, I think that's something we, that will help if hopefully Claire Polkinghorn is fit and right to go. Same with Alana Kennedy. And you can get at least one of those sort of key posts in. Um, I feel confident with that and then you either have Steph Catley or Courtney Nevin and you know you've got Angie Beard there as well um, it's I think it's 
getting some of those players in the roles that they can play yeah. is, is the key. Like flexibility, I think there's, there's something to say for flexibility and adaptability for players, particularly in a tournament setting, because there are going to be injuries that happen to one and there's a domino effect. So you have to have, be able to have players who can shuffle in and around and make sure that there aren't huge drops in quality or in uh, structure. But at the same time, playing players where they're best should be the goal. That is why Ellie Carpenter is the best right back maybe in the world at the moment. You need to play her where she's best when you can. If you can't, that's okay. We understand that. But when you can, you do. And that's the same when it comes to, I think, the number six as well. You need to have a player there who knows what they're doing, who's comfortable in that position and experienced in that position and has the energy and the grit and the fight of that position. Because that was what I really noticed in that second friendly. The midfield just had no spark to them. They were flabby. They were slow. Like they just didn't seem to click or to work or to do the stuff that a high energy midfield needs to do, particularly against a team like the USA. And when Claire Wheeler on, she came on, she brought that kind of energy. And we saw um, also when Kennedy came on and Tamiki Olive got pushed into midfield as well. But just Definitely out of that, helps. like you've got elite runners. I think one absence I really do want to note is Chloe Legazzo. No, <laughs> no way that first goal, that first goal, or the only goal, sorry, in the second game happens if Chloe is there. Because think of that tracking run she did on Alex Morgan at the Olympics. Think how many yeah. times she's busted her ass to get that defence out of trouble. I think people really... I, I see a lot of people, not a lot of people, certain people on Twitter do criticise Chloe Legazzo because she's not this refined ball-playing mm. midfield. She scores goals. She can play pretty much anywhere with her running capacity on the field. Yeah. And I do think we really missed her. And that's a, I know we're not going to have her available at the Asian Cup. I just thought it was really, really noticeable mm. how much we miss Legazzo and her running power and her aggression. Mm. Um, but, yeah, Angela? Well, I was just going to say... Legazzo, when I was thinking about, yeah, what was potentially lacking, especially in that new game, it was that I think why Rasso stood out is because she brought such, yeah, brought aggression and brought drive and um, didn't make, you know, perfect passes every time and her touch was a little bit off at the start. But I think that made her stand out a lot in the context of the other players for the game and yeah Chloe Legazzo that's what she's kind of you know known for is that um that the engine that she brings and the, the tracking back and all of those things so yeah um I think a bit more a bit more oomph across the field would be nice I think there was a there was a little bit I don't know I don't know if I was just reading the vibes wrong, but there were particular moments in the game where I was like, do we, do we want this? Like, what's yeah. going on? And that wasn't necessarily, that was from our more experienced players, not mm -hmm. the kids. So, yeah, I did find that particularly interesting. But, um, yeah, and I think the sort of, yeah, demeanour that Rasso displayed off. Rasso versus Box. How, how much fun was that? But yeah, she does, she does do that and she's proven that um, time and time again that she has that capacity. So... I'm basically just talking about Hayley Rasso now, but I thought everyone knows she had a great game. But Spire of the match, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. <laughs> it was interesting because I don't know if she necessarily had the most impact because Fox was sensational yeah, and the US were wrapped with her. But mm. it just shows having a bit of aggro is so important. Look at Lindsay Horan. Like, um, friend of the pod, Tom, probably described her as a like a pantomime villain. It's similar to what Megan Rapinoe has been able to do. Like, because she's so good. Like, if you're such a good player and then you're also a bit of a pest and you get in people's faces and she was in the press conference before the game saying, you know, we score on them early and shut the crowd up. Like, just 
when when she got yellow cards, there were cheers. When people thought she'd taken a bit of a dive, which yeah. she probably she certainly made a meal of that penalty in that oh, in the yeah. first game. People hate it, and they're a good thing to have, like because it's the sort of player that teammates love him, and mm. if you support that team, you love him. Opposition hate him, and that's something that I think Hayley Razzo does really well. And it would just be extra infuriating because she's got this ribbon. One, and you're like, you should be like some, you know, delicate little winger that just runs up and down and maybe does a couple of flashy step overs. No, she's just aggressive. She, yeah. she shoulder charges. She has a little bit of push and shove with her opponents. It's, it's great. And it's something that we miss without um, Legazzo there. But it's good. Like, you want that. Caitlin Ford also, yeah, I thought we missed in the second game. She isn't, she isn't afraid of going sort of toe-to-toe in a game with players. And it, it's a good thing, that sort of aggression. Um, Nice guys don't win championships. Like, they don't win World Cups. You look, and there's always at least one antagonist. And if Hayley Razan could be that unexpected one, um, then I reckon that's fantastic. In kind of the same way that Murphy was player of the match the first game, and that tells a story, I think Razo being player of the match in a very similar way tells you a lot in a very small amount of information. Um, I think we covered a lot of questions that we had about Jess Nash, about Nevin, about... Can I talk about Nevin? You may talk about Nevin, but like we've, we've covered a lot of your questions. So if I haven't said your name or your question specifically, I'm sure you can find something in amongst that chat that will uh, satisfy your question. But yes, you did want to talk about Nevin. So a quick chat about Nevin. Yeah, I... Um... I think with Courtney Nevin, we were all fascinated when she got brought in from camps into the Olympic, into the sorry, the friendlies pre the Olympics, and mm. then she was obviously in the original alternates list, but did get some game time at the Olympics. They clearly rate her so highly. I know she's come through the young Matildas pathway, but I was really curious because we hadn't seen a lot of her, especially mm. at the Wanderers. Like, just didn't get a heap of game time last season. The injuries and that sort of thing contributed there, a bit of burnout, um, but. I just reckon she's gone from strength to strength. Like, that first game, she was clearly partly responsible for the first goal. This is in the 3-0 loss in Sydney. The second goal, she gets completely bodied, outworked, outsmarted by um, Margaret Purse for the second goal. Um, And I reckon there must have been a bit of review tape going on about bodying up on opponents, not letting them get away, physicality, because I thought in the second game against the US, that really came to the fore. Um, we saw, I think it was against the Republic of Ireland, that wand of a left foot she's got that can really cause some problems. She yeah. put a shot over the bar in this game. She can take set pieces. And I spoke to her before um, the upcoming A-League women's season. She did say she likes to model a lot of her game on Steph Catley. So makes sense. A couple of lefties, wand of a left foot. She can play centre-back, can play left-back. I'd have to think her future, unless this centre-back thing is solved by another lefty coming through, she seems like the obvious one going forward. I thought she made that brilliant challenge on Lindsay Horan, I think it was about the 34th minute, Mm -hmm. that would have otherwise been a straightforward chance. She got body on on Lynn Williams quite a lot of times Mm. in in the second game. Uh, Just the thing I liked about her and also Nash when they both recovered from the first goal in the first game, they take the game on. And that's something I've always loved about Alana Kennedy. My favourite player probably in football is a centre-back that will take it on and go for a run and try and create and do something with the ball. And we talk about oomph and that sort of thing can come from the midfield. But when you've got centre-backs that are willing to take risks and be courageous and step up and into play and get involved and they're not scared. And this is why I just reckon it's fantastic. And I reckon this is why the the vibe coming out of the Matildas post that first game especially, but even the second one, was they weren't worried with Jess Nash about that turn turnover and goal or that, that mix-up for the goal because they clearly rate 
her character and her resilience and ability yeah. to bounce back because that's what international footballers need to be able to do. Everyone makes mistakes. Even the best players in the world can make criminal mistakes in defence or attack or turnovers. But clearly both of these young players have a lot of resilience and we didn't really get to see it with Nash Kishim, you know, play in the second game, but I thought we saw that development from Nevin and would we have seen that step up if she didn't have the challenge in the first game? Maybe, mm. but it, it can be good in terms of building building character and building a player. And yeah, it was interesting. I don't think there were too many players that you go, I learned a lot about them in these two games, but I thought I saw in in Courtney Nevin that she can make the step up. Yeah. And that's, it. Might, it's not going to, I'm not saying it's going to happen, you know, next year, Courtney Nevin, best centre back in the world or anything like that. But you go, okay, this player can make the grade. And that's, not something we've necessarily had about too many centre-backs, I think, in recent years in terms of going, yes, this player could be a consistent Matilda. I think the next big question for Nevin is what she's going to do at Clubland. Yes. She's just signed for Melbourne Victory. But I've, I don't know about y'all, but I don't think she's getting in front of Kayla Morrison or Claudia Bunge in that centre-back pairing at Victory. She's going to be probably played as a, a left fullback as a replacement for Angie Beard. But is that where she's going to be played for the Matildas? Is that something she needs to be taking into consideration now when it comes to her club football? Is she maybe going to talk to Jeff about trying to do a back three kind of scenario where she's one of the back, sort of the three, three centre-backs there? So, yeah, but I absolutely agree. I think she, she absolutely bounced back from that first game and she displayed, I think, the kind of maturity on the ball, the decision-making, the quality on the ball as well that has got her to this point in the first place. It was a, a kind of performance that we probably haven't seen from Nevin yep. yet. We maybe saw flashes when she had a really good season for the Wanderers a couple of years ago. But this was really the first time, I think, that all of us were like, oh, so that's why she's here. Mm. We got it, you know? And I think that it's great that of several negatives that we can take out of the USA series, one of the major positives is the emergence of Courtney Nevin because I think she's absolutely going to be part and parcel of this Matilda's team going forward. I think Mary Fowler is a 10. I like it. Um, I know that she came in as a striker, um, as a forward, and she kept banging goals. Um, But we were speaking about Emily Van Egmont and we mentioned Tamiki Albert. Not going to be around forever. And um, we know that Kyra Cooney-Cross can play further forward as well. But if you end up in the future with a midfield group where you've got, let's say, Claire Wheeler, Kyra Cooney-Cross, and then Mary Fowler as the most advanced sort of player, like... It's very, very exciting. Like, she was put some of the balls she was putting through, especially in Newcastle, you're like, wow. Like, and like, it took some proper, almost world class defending from Emily Fox at times to shut down a couple of those, those balls. Like, and against teams in the Asian Cup, I reckon there's some teams that you go, that's going to end up in a goal. Yeah. Uh, it's super exciting. And we're getting to see. It's interesting, um, Tony was saying in before the two friendlies about, he got asked about where do you settle her down? Like, do you, pick one position and go, I'm going to play her heaps here and get her settled. I think they're still going to try and do a bit of you play her in the midfield and then maybe if you push someone in, then you push Fowler up the the field a bit. But when you've got so many forward options, Mm. you can sort of have the room to be a bit fluid with where you play such a talented player. It's super exciting. Even playing her as a false nine. Yeah, Having exactly. her interchanging with Sam Kerr, because we're seeing now Sam Kerr has having to drop back a lot more mm. because she's the marked woman, right? Everyone yep. knows she's fantastic. So she plays with her back to goal a lot. And so she has to come where deeper the goal came into from. midfield. Exactly. She has to come deeper into midfield. She needs to control and pass the ball off somewhere else. And I'm having a Mary Fowler charging through there from a 10 position mm. and then using what Sam Kerr describes as the best technique in the Matildas. Yeah, to best finisher shoot, in the Matildas. The best finisher in the Matildas 
to actually take the goal on a little bit more often than what she's been doing. That would be a sensational partnership, I reckon. It's funny, I asked Sam Kerr and also Steph Kelly and Claire Polking on who I chatted to all three of them at separate times before the friendlies, and I was like, Mary Fowler, what do you reckon? Because she came in for the, the World Cup, obviously, wasn't quite ready, had a little hammy injury, had made a debut at 15, and the overwhelming feedback seems to be she's gone to Europe, obviously matured, because she's still only 18 turning 19, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, and has just taken her game to another level. She's been enjoying her football, loving the environment. The players seem to love her. And all like all of them, like Steph Catley was like, yeah, Mary Fowler, best finisher, left foot, right foot, doesn't matter. She'll score them. And yeah. then to have Sam Kerr, the, like arguably in some people's eyes would say the best striker in the world, you can, you can pick depending on who you love. But arguably the best striker in the world is saying, this is the best finisher in the Matildas. And it just speaks volumes for someone that young. So... It's, it's, a, it's a good headache to have, isn't it? Like, mm -hmm. you go, oh, do we play her in the 10 and she can create lots of goals or do we put her further forward and maybe she can score lots of goals? Like, it's, it is exciting. I know she didn't get on, on the score sheet in these friendlies, but, like, just I just thought the glimpses just were coming and coming. And then Kyra Cooney-Cross was so close to her first international goal as well with that pretty audacious volley that hit, yeah. the, um, hit the post. So it's, um, there were some exciting things to like. And once again, it's some fresh faces that are delivering it. Again, we have answered a lot of questions that you guys had, but I am curious, is there anything else that you kind of learnt from this game that you didn't know before? Because we have had basically, you know, a year worth of Tony ball, let's call it, or just Tony time generally. Is there anything else that these games kind of revealed to you that you weren't aware of before, Angela? Putting me on the spot. You must um, answer now. Yeah, I did, I did not have a... I personally did not have a great time with Ellie at centre-back. Um, I think, and I think that was interesting, but I'm very, I'm, I appreciate the fact that, yeah, Tony is trying out players in different positions to, I guess, test the depth of the squad for that tournament mode football, where, as you say, Sam, there can be a real domino effect and you want to make sure that you have options. But, um, yeah, it was just, I think she has that determination to run towards goal. Um, and I think also the second game as well, there was a little bit of, Poja Lacken, um, which I really ab admired in both Nevin and Nash. Um, and to, as well, going off what we were just talking about, players like Mary Fowler, they are very, and Wheeler as well, I really appreciate that they're all very composed, um, calm players. It's really noticeable and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, going back to Ellie Carpenter, um, yeah, it's, it goes back to that conversation of where do you play these players and I think she's definitely like she's lethal on the right wing and I think it can work in a back three but as a centre back and a back four it just seemed like she yeah she just got too much urge to attack and perhaps I'm not sure if that's something that she can develop over time to perhaps be a little bit more disciplined in staying back but yeah I'm, I'm not sure may have I'd be curious to see her back there again to see if it's just like if it was a one-off sort of scenario where it didn't really work well. I don't know. Did you guys get that vibe I'd, or am I just having a too spicy a take here? Yeah, I mean, I thought Ellie Carpenter was pretty good at centre-back when she was played there during the Olympics. Um, I think that was necessary. And one of the big holes that she filled in terms of the centre-back question is she has speed. Mm -hmm. And when we're playing against transition teams like the USA or even like a Sweden, her speed was so important when we had to turn back and chase the ball. 
Steph Catley, to a similar extent, she's also quite quick, and that's why I think the two of them were used in the way that they were in Tokyo. And I'd be curious to see if we get to the pointy end of the Asian Cup, whether something similar happens. Um, but I think overall, looking at the entire sort of oeuvre of Tony so far from when he took over in January, we're seeing these players able to do both. And that's probably something that they weren't familiar with or comfortable doing prior to him coming in. So that's where I sort of, I look across all of these friendlies as one long experiment from the very, very start before Tokyo up until now, one long experiment trying to not just uh, introduce more players to the fold and see if they can sink or swim, but also ensuring that players that we do have who we know are not going to be dropped are able to do things that they weren't able to do before. And so I think even though, yeah, against the USA, Ellie Carpenter at centre-back was a bit of a yikes, I think overall, the fact that she is becoming more comfortable there is a good thing because there are going to be games. I mean, this is the thing, like when we talk about formations, when we talk about plays in certain spots, like it all depends on the opponent. And if we come up against a high, like a high transition team that we know are really quick up front, we're going to need to have someone like a Catley or a Carpenter at a centre back position because we know that they're speedy. And so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see them there all the time. But if they can do that and if they can do all the other stuff, that's great. Yeah, we knew Steph Catley could play centre-back, but Ellie Carpenter, it was important to know, people forget, like, Steph Catley was out for most of last season with that hamstring tear yeah. as well as calf issues. So if you needed a speedy player to go in and you couldn't count on Catley because of her injuries, Carpenter was the obvious choice. And, you know, I'm sure she's developed her game or even taken things away for when she does go back to right-back that will be valuable. Yeah. Alana Kennedy picked up an injury apparently doing top-up runs at Man City, like... Claire Polkinghorne wasn't available for these. Uh, so when you, if you don't play for a substitute because you've been obviously like bulking for the game, they get you to run to, you know, they do extra running at the end of the game. The player doesn't play much. Like the sprints and you see them on the end yeah. after the game. Football lessons with Harrow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, sorry. AK injured during a Zoomie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. During a Zoomie. Very unnecessary injury. An unnecessary Zoomie. Unnecessary Zoomies. Yeah. But like, we have to see this because when it came to these US games, we had both of those first-choice centre-backs unavailable. They had to improvise. Yep. So there's a level of that. The thing that intrigues me that I feel, I don't think we've actually properly learned it, is the goalkeeper situation. I think when we got to the Olympics, we were like, yes, Tegan Micah, number one goalkeeper. But since then, she's been injured. I think there was a concussion. She's just played one of the past few friendlies. She, I think, personally would probably say she could have done better for the Rose Lavelle goal in the second yeah. game. Probably should have saved that. And then Tony basically said that Lydia Williams kept Australia in the second game. Mm. And he's been, every time he's been asked about it in a press conference, and he gets asked pretty frequently about the goalkeeper situation, he doesn't like to say he's got a number one goalkeeper. We saw Mackenzie Arnold tested out earlier on. So I'm intrigued by that as to whether he will settle in to say Tegan Micah or mm. Lydia Williams as his number one. That intrigues me. Also, the fact that given the timing of seasons, Micah's season in Sweden is finished. Lydia Williams isn't playing a heat for Arsenal. And Mackenzie Arnold is playing every week at West Ham mm -hmm. and doing very, very well. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting dynamic as to as to who he goes with and who makes an impact. Um, and how also how those three goalkeepers handle that. Because you compare it to the Socceroos where Matt Ryan is the incumbent and he plays like pretty mm -hmm. much every game. And you see that with some other like some women's national teams as well. They're very consistent number ones. I'm just interested to see. I think we'll probably get more of an answer come the Asian Cup. 
Um, or maybe we won't. <laughs> You'll play three goalkeepers in the three group games. But it is an interesting thing that I think hasn't been answered. And usually that is one of the first points of stability that you see. Mm. I thought it was interesting. I'm super keen to see Maka play for the Matildas again, given she's had such a fantastic start to the season at West Ham. So I did find it interesting because that would mean that her last games, this is probably incorrect information, was those earlier friendlies before Ireland. Okay. Oh, yeah. What the goals mm. weren't her fault in the Republic of Ireland game. Uh, from what I can remember. Yeah, I'm Let's just like not talk about the Republic of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I would have liked to have seen her potentially in this set of friendlies. But um, you know, it's not about yeah, not a bad position to be in to have three keepers that are all looking pretty decent and in form. Oh, and I did just want to say as well. So the the lack of composure for the start of the new game that was everyone as well. I think yes. that was a, a team effort. Uh, <laughs> Because it, yeah, it was it was pretty chaotic out there. A lot of turning over the ball. A lot of it's it was very confusing to watch. Can, can someone clarify? Was that a back three? Was that a back? You said it was a fluid back line, Harry. Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was more of a, a sort of a four Forward. trying to transition when we go dropping forward. Back in. Yeah, hmm. similar sort of to what we saw during Tokyo. Um, and maybe that's why there was some confusion as well because chucking a couple new players into a system like that can maybe not do yeah. too well because Carpenter yeah she had an a great what's the word campaign can you have yeah. a campaign as an individual mm -hmm. campaign at the Olympics so I don't know maybe sorry Ellie maybe I've judged too soon <laughs> but yeah I just just the memory of that first game where she's like running off with the ball and I'm like no Ellie <laughs> but, she, <laughs> but she just she loves to run that girl um but yeah I don't know I'd I, yeah, no, no, no more thoughts. Takes are done. Takes are done. We're takes done. Are done. Takes. Just flat. We didn't see Tim. I uh, didn't see the Tim Cahill record go. We didn't see yeah. Sam Kerr break the record. Yeah. Um, and it just shows like the how good the US are and def the US are in defence. And like, I felt for Becky Salbron, who's the player that gets brought on um, in these friendlies to shore up the defence, and she cops the unlucky <laughs> deflection. <laughs> but like, they were very, very solid defensively. No, like, excellent. I know Kai Simon had that gimme chance that she missed, but geez, there weren't too many. A lot of our best chances, especially in that first game against the US, came from long range, sort of speculative. The Caitlin Ford one off balance, Sam Kerr with another, like sort of. Whipped it and Murphy was just saving everything, which wasn't yeah. particularly fair, in my humble opinion. Um, <laughs> but I think that's going to be interesting, getting the best out of this attack as well, unlocking things. And it comes back to what Sam said as well about um, if you've got your more creative midfielders further up the park, um, because we saw so much aimless crossing in that second game from a bit of everyone. I think there were a lot of culprits with the aimless crosses in the second game. Yeah. Um, and it was, to me, no coincidence, though, it was a deflected goal that the goal came from some build-up like yeah. beyond the wheeler initial ball she managed to lay it off to catley who puts it up to kerr back to goal feeds it off um like they just lays it off to kai simon who scores like it didn't come from just ambitious crosses to yeah. sam kerr or to no one in particular like and that's something that i think needed to settle and it was interesting as well seeing um we had a lot of the u.s journos on the press conferences as well the zoom press conference friend of the pod stephanie young among them and it was really interesting seeing the US perspective of how much we stretched them and how difficult it made their lives and how much they struggled with our pressing and um, our run and transition and it, it did remind me that there is perspectives outside of ours and we can yeah. kind of get caught up in what we see so it was quite yeah. fascinating to get I guess that perspective but I guess that comes back to we tend to be quite good at winning the ball but we're 
what we how we use the ball comes into it as well, especially under pressure, mm. not turning it over, um, creating genuine chances because there's creating a lot of chances and then there's creating genuine chances. Mm. And yeah. I think that was probably something that we needed to improve on from these couple of games. That's a lot of Tilly talk. I think that's enough Tilly talk. What would you like I to say, Angela? I a bad joke. Please, make it. So when you have Nevin and Nash at the back, you've got two centre plats. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Nash didn't oh, even no. have a plat. Didn't she? No. Yeah. I thought they both she had did. the break. Because um, oh, I remember, no, I think I'm... she whipped Hatched in the eye yeah. with it. Uh, or uh, she... If we're going to talk about plats, Hatched's plat, very impressive. Mm. Very, very impressive. But thank you for making that joke. You are right. They both all Many of a sudden. Braids. Yeah, love love a good plat between our tillies. The weapon that the you braid can use. The braid tilters. The braid tilters. No. But I took initiative. <laughs> <laughs> I put myself out there and I'm being punished. That's anyway. what the people tuned in. They're going to skip through that 40 minutes of chat and just come for the bad jokes. But um, there were other things actually going on outside these Matildas games. Obviously, we've got the A-League women's season. Susan, the A-League women's season starting soon. We have a preview ep of that already out now. So if you want to listen to our takes about that, yes. go forth and find get stuck in, as Harrow has just said. We also, it's an award season. So we had the Ballon d'Or awarded. Uh, Alexia Puteas won. She, the Barcelona midfielder. I think we can all pretty comfortably say a deserved winner. Like, even yeah. with our Tilly's hats on, it, it's, it was her kind of award yeah, to year. lose. So... I think no issues with uh, that one. Kerr did come third, which was very impressive. I hope she gets one before the end of her career because she has had remarkable consistency, yeah. Sam Kerr. It's like five years in a row. Is it nominated? The, for the FIFA for Best the FIFA. Award, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, just and gets nominated for everything. Yeah. And she was sensational. Like, just, I think you almost surely get one for consistency at some point. Like, it seems to happen in the men's game. You, Messi surely got one for consistency this year. <laughs> He certainly didn't get it for his performance this year. But, um, yeah, so we'll, we will continue to talk about the Ballon d'Or, but not for kind of the good reasons. We have a little bit of a boot. And friend of the pod, Kathleen McNamee, wrote a piece about it for ESPN about the scheduling of the awards mm. taking place in the middle of the women's international window to the point where most of the players couldn't play. And I think it was either Barcelona or Spain chartered a flight for some of their players so that there was at least some representation of the winner could be there. <laughs> like, the winner could be there. Literally. So, I'm, it, you know, this is something that definitely rustles our jimmies. So any little boot-worthy takes for... I mean, it's just like, it's it's two step forwards, one step back when it comes to this sort of stuff, isn't it? Like introducing the women's Ballon d'Or was like, yes, great, finally, right? This is an award that's been around in the men's game since, what, the 60s? Mm-hmm. And finally, they brought the women's one in. I was like, oh, my God, awesome. Ada Hegerberg wins it. Awesome. She's asked to twerk. <laughs> you know? Like, what more? Can, can we not just have a nice thing that just stays nice and pure? No, we can't. We can't seem to have that. And then when this, with this iteration of the award as well, it's not just that it was scheduled in a women's international window, meaning the vast majority of the nominees couldn't be there, but it was presented by Kylian Mbappe, mm-hmm. like, who won, like, Young Player. And he was asked about himself. He wasn't asked about the winner. He wasn't asked about the women's game. He was asked about, oh, like, what's it like being you? <laughs> people don't care. You know? Like, Not even that people don't care. People know. People have asked him this for years. Oh. It's nothing new. And it was just interesting, Sam, we were talking about this pre-pod, like, even seeing the social media feed, I think it might have been France before, like, 
It was literally, you'd be going through and you'd be like, ah, so sixth in the men's award is blah, blah, blah. Fifth in the men's award is blah, blah. By the way, Alexia Pateas won the whole thing. And now let's get back to the countdown to the men's award. Like, yeah. It felt like, in beyond what you said about Mbappe presenting it, like, it barely got elevated above the men's youth player. Let alone that there isn't a women's young player of the yeah, right? of the year. Yeah. Like, women, there are, you know, the three genders. Men, women, and young men. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like... Just sort of not quite an afterthought, but not much better. Like um, yeah. it just it just could have been done better. Like why if you're gonna go to the effort to make graphics for every single men's entrant and make a real point of it, like I had to figure it out from I think Matilda's and Chelsea accounts that Sam Kerr finished third. Like yeah. it was it didn't feel like a big dramatic countdown in the same way. Yeah. So it's like just not hard things to get right, are they? It's the old it's the old be better. That said. I did love that seemingly coincidentally, Marissa, you said this, uh, Messi and Pateas were like pretty much matching. Yes, that <laughs> as was the fun. two winners. Like, <laughs> Though one had much better shoulder pads, I'll say that. Yeah. Incredible. Like, she looked incredible. What a look. Big, obviously, sailing sequins in both Paris and Barcelona, allegedly, to make both of those outfits. But it was just so funny that they matched. Messi's kids all wore sequin jackets as well. Ooh. And his wife looked like the odd one out. Like, you probably could have subbed Alexia in. And at least that family or like that group of people would have looked cohesive in just all their sequined looks. So it was very funny. But yeah, as I said, Kathleen McNamee wrote a piece about it for ESPN. So there's a couple more takes in there. I just wanted to point out that I have Jenny Hermoso socks on. Okay. And did I have another take? Oh, yeah. The, the social media thing that you mentioned, Harry, that's a very timely thing to bring up in terms of how we progress forward with the A-Leagues accounts merging because I think that's a lot of I just very quick aside I think that's what a lot of people are worried about in terms yes. of the imbalance so yeah and I, I I have I'm optimistic about it but I also it is very much it's all oh, the women are giving it a go oh, they're giving it a go we have a little more yeah it's not it's not a good vibe it's a bit yeah boot if, you, if you're gonna do that like you'd then have to be committed to equal coverage and yes. you can't have a line about well, oh, but there's so many more stories in the that we're right. No, there's so many like in that. If that's the case, there's so many more stories because that's what you're choosing yes. to write. There are interesting stories in both leagues, mm. um, and I don't want to rip anyone before I've given them the benefit of the doubt of actually getting it right. I hope we do see a good balance in terms of um, the coverage given to the men's and women's leagues um, if they're going to hold the same uh, Twitter account, because it can be a really good thing in terms of with social media if you have the shared account with men's and women's leagues or men's and women's teams in terms of overall reach because often the men's league account which is what this is being merged into has greater reach has more followers get is more likely to get stuff out there and get things amplified but you then got to follow through with the coverage and make sure that you are actually amplifying things you gotta have things to amplify so that's the key and uh yeah not a boot yet for me yeah sorry diverge there but it just seemed yeah comparison comparative yeah. I think, a word i think it's interesting just like the in terms of both the social media accounts the awards and it's kind of a collective thing not only in football but i would say sport more generally where a lot of teams codes everything are on board with the gender equality thing but they think it's a box ticking exercise rather than a continuous process so that's what we've seen with this awards it's like but we've given the women award and it's like yeah and now you've got to continue making that effort to make it yeah. something that is consistent and equal to the men's version. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that in so many different spaces across sports, uh, definitely in football, 
from literally, you know, France to here in Australia. So it's going to be something that we'll obviously talk about because we don't love talking about it, but we're going to bloody talk about it, I'll tell you that much. But um, let's end things on a positive note with some how goods. Harry, did you want to start us with a how good? I do. We're here in, as you mentioned at the start of the show, in um, Sydney, New South Glorious Wales. Sydney. Glorious Sydney, thank you. No. That's the wrong adjective, <laughs> That's my not friend. On the map. That's the wrong. And y- yes, we might know. For the, <laughs> hang on, you, can you we... pointed the blue sky, but it's. Uh, it's it's going to be like an armpit. Yeah, so, in classic Sydney fashion, the blue skies rocked up post all the big events. Like, you've had the football matches, you you've had, had the weekend. Apparently, it was stunning weather in glorious Melbourne. Beautiful but weather. But that's beyond the point. We know how glorious Melbourne is. But we are here in Sydney. Um, floods? No floods. They had the floods, but eh, eh whatever. Um, glorious floods. 2021. Oh, um, anyway, let's carry on with some how good. So, the point is, we're in Sydney and um, we're all up here because obviously the Matildas played first in Sydney, then in Newcastle. I don't always like to give Sydney and New South Wales kudos, but they deserve it because despite awful weather in Sydney on Saturday and then also in Newcastle on Tuesday, we saw a record crowd for the Matildas on home soil in Sydney. It was a bit over 36,000. Would you like the exact number? I would love the exact uh, number. 36,109 in Sydney and then 20,494 in Newcastle. So Woo-hoo. the point with the first one is the previous record for a Matildas game was not a standalone. It was a doubleheader with the Ollie Roos at Sydney 2000. And the previous record was like well, well, well short of that for a standalone game. It was against Chile, I think, in 2019. Mm-hmm. So fantastic, broke the record. Uh, we know Sydney siders are notoriously fickle, so it's good for them to show up despite the rain. Like, that's fantastic. Like, I'll say, you know, like if you didn't go to things when it's raining in Sydney, you'd never go to anything. But <laughs> just had to tick them all off for you, Sam. But no, fantastic. From the Matildas fans in Sydney, friends and family, the, the big thing with these two games is the first time the players got to see their family and friends and give them a hug. Like, Steph Catley had her family up from Melbourne. Um, so Mary Fowler had her family. I think they're, they're up in Queensland usually. And obviously all the girls in Sydney getting to have a have a hug and see their family. And I imagine some of the players probably have gone home and seen their families if they mm-hmm. weren't bound to tight international breaks. But, yeah, full kudos to um, people. And there were plenty um, when we were at Melbourne Airport on the Saturday morning coming up for the game in Sydney. So that was fantastic. People flying in for the game. Sydney turned up. Um, record crowd. And then to back it up in Newcastle, I think it was 8.05 p.m. technically, kicked off a bit later on a Tuesday night. Record showing in Newcastle. Just fantastic. Like, the ball is rolling, the momentum swinging. There's absolutely nothing standing in the way of women's football. So, two record crowds in two games. How good. And you love to see it. And just fantastic. Well done, New South Wales. That's the only time she's ever going to say that. So, like, keep this that for prosperity. Receipt. Like. <laughs> Harrow said something nice about Sydney, 2nd of December, 2021. But you know what the thing is? I can use it, like, whenever they do something wrong as well. Just pull up the... Cl- well she, done, New South Wales. She, she's, always, <laughs> she's always thinking ahead. She's, but it what they... And just great turnouts. Really nice to see the full stands. And especially, I think we do need to... The COVID context that, yeah. you know, that we were all literally able to travel to these games to hang out and see other mates who have also travelled from places and stuff. So an all-round how good. Sam, how good? My how good this week, there was an international striker who did break a goal-scoring record, and that was Ellen White, my Ellen wife. 
She became England's all-time leading goal scorer in their 20-0 win, which is another issue. But Ellen White has been a an amazing striker for the Lionesses for such a long time. She finally uh, she finally got to the 49 goals, and it's it's just like it's. I think the reason I love her so much is because she is such a classic, humble mature kind of a striker and like she's like a comfort blanket for me when I see her playing and I just I love that she has finally been recognized for not just her posterity but for her work ethic she's like she's getting on in age now and she just continues to deliver and that's something that I think so many young strikers emerging at the moment can look to and really aspire to as well so Ellen White international goal scorer record breaker I love you my wifey how good? How good. Also that, how, that bit. How good that she ticked off this record and made you remember her existence again. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a, been a rough year for Samantha and Ellen, but we won't, we won't talk about that. Angela, please, how good? Uh, yeah, my how good's a little bit random, and I think once I've done it, we can now classify as a culture podcast. Um, my how good is a TV show, and it's a bit of a dick move for me to recommend it because it just expired on SBS. Um, on demand that was where it was um, being played and I really a race to the finish line for me but well worth it um, it's a tv show called Heimbahn I think or Homeground it's Norwegian it's about a woman who takes over a newly promoted men's football team who have just gone up to the Elite Siren and so good oh my god I can't emphasize how good it is it's and I don't think it was a big deal in Norway but it doesn't seem to have made much of a Splash internationally, but the themes that it speaks to and the way that it handles these particular topics around gender and football and fandom and like things like player welfare, sexuality in football, it covers all these different things, but in such a, um, I don't know, like nuanced way, because obviously the context you'd be able to potentially do a TV show like this, which would go pretty heavy handed in terms of, I don't know the gendered politics of it but it incorporates those things whilst also incorporating these storylines that are very much about football and about coaching and yes I just are uh, two seasons it's so good I'm not saying watch it illegally if you can I'm not saying that but like it's well worth a watch anyway I don't know if we have to cut that sorry Laurie um he's <laughs> like not my problem but yes um home ground is how how good how good very, very good. And a quick how good. Uh, big thanks to Mike and Laurie for organising all of this. Yay. Yay. He's so, so embarrassed. <laughs> you had to watch us waffle for like an hour. So you do very much deserve a how good. And just thanks for all your help for organising for all of this. So you guys do deserve some credit. It's mainly us, but you do deserve some credit. <laughs> A little credit as a treat. <laughs> as a treat, as a treat. But no, thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, you can find us on ESPN.com.au and the ESPN app. We're on Spotify, Apple and Google. You can subscribe wherever you listen, leave a review if you like what we've done. We're at the Far Post Pod on all social medias. So get in touch with us for Tilly's takes, for A-League women takes, whatever your kind of women's football chat is. But until next time, Slayers.